0: Find a seat. All right. As you're sitting down, as you're finding your seat, I just want to remind you about the dinner tonight. Looking forward to uh, a little car. We're gonna do Thanksgiving dinner early, so this afternoon my house is gonna smell like a turkey cooking with stuffing inside of it. Uh, we'll have some other things to go alongside of that. So really, it's meant to be a time of fellowship for us as we come together. And of course, Baptists have to eat when we fellowship, so we're gonna. Be- And then we're going to have a time where you can offer up praise to God. So I want you to think about that uh, for a minute. Um, How much God has done for you and how we are called to offer up praise to God uh, for His work in our life and the things He has done. So I'm going to remind you about this tonight, though, but when the the time arises to give praise to God, we want to focus on God. Uh, And I say that because sometimes when we have these times people can start talking about other people in the room and it's okay to be praise to God. And if you have scripture, that makes it even better, right? If we go from the word to offering praise to God. So, uh, you don't have to stand up tonight, but we'd love for you to have a heart overflowing, uh, with thanksgiving to God for what he's done for you, that you would stand up and say something. So yes. I'll use buddy. Okay. Thanks. All right. So I can take this off. But this restricts me. I have to stay on the spot. That's okay. Alrighty. So, Kingdom Heart Matters, Enduring Love. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the uh, difficult issue of uh, divorce and remarriage. That's where we are in the text. So, if you guys ever wonder, like, why is he preaching on what he's preaching on? It's because we just systematically go through the books of the Bible, right? So, here in Matthew, uh, we're at this point where Jesus talks about uh, divorce. Divorce and the issue of divorce and when divorce is permissible, and remarriage is permissible. Um, so today we'll be looking at that. And really I want to focus on um, the concept of the heart, right? Because as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we know that the teachings of Jesus are so rich here. I mean, all of them are rich, but here it's just intense. It's packed in uh, here in this in this message. And you look at it and you go, this is so hard to do, right? and right? And it is hard. It's a high calling. You can't do it without a transformed heart. You have to have a heart, a new heart given to you by God, through the new birth, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so that's why I have that heart there behind. The, whenever I put these little pictures up there, there's typically a meaning behind it. There's the heart behind uh, the law. Uh, that The law is important, but the heart uh, is what God is working on. And we'll see that again today as we look at the text. So today we're going to see that Jesus' teachings protect the sacredness of marriage and us from destructive choices so that we can fully enjoy God's design for the gift of marriage as salt and light. Right? want to put salt and light in there because throughout the Sermon on the Mount study, how is it that we can be salt and light? And we'll finish up with some application points related to that. So today we're going to be looking at marriage, the sacred gift of marriage given to us by God for His glory and our enjoyment. For those of you who are married, you think back to that that wedding day, the, the joyous occasion, all that led up to that, and then the hopes and dreams that you had for the future that you would have with your spouse. Love, laughter, and happily ever after. I've been through four weddings with my, my girls, and I'm still alive, okay? That's good. Um, but it's been a pleasure to me to, to see them unite in holy matrimony uh, with their spouse and, and just knowing them, the hopes and aspirations and goals and desires that come along with that marriage. But sadly, though, because we live in a sin-cursed world, marriages don't always last. And you guys are familiar with the divorce rates. They really haven't changed that much. The frequency of marriage has decreased. If you look at statistics, uh, the frequency of marriage has decreased, but the rate of divorce has not decreased. Now, 30% to 50% is quite a disparity. 35 to 50% is quite a, a gap there. Uh, it just depends on who you get the statistics from. Again, but it's closer to 50%, I would say. And that statistic has held true for quite a while. And as you look at, at, the, at uh, history, the way things have, have, have gone, or really, uh, back in the early 1900s, at the beginning of the 20th century, only 10% of marriages ended in divorce. That's amazing how things have progressed. Well, some people think, well, you know, if I get married a second time, that's going to make it better because I learned all the mistakes from the first marriage, so I'm going to move on to another spouse, and so it's going to get better, right? Well, 60% of second marriages and 70% of third, <laughs> that's a great typo, I love that, of third marriages end in divorce. And this is, a, this is so important. I try to teach people this in premarital counseling. Cohabitation does not increase the likelihood of a successful marriage, right? People think that if we just get it figured out, we're going to live together. There's really no commitment there. That would we break things off and no no harm, no foul. And we'll just, you know, if we break it off, we'll just move on with separate lives, right? And so you do the practice run, but then you think you're ready now. And so you get married and okay, we're, we have a greater success uh, potential because we lived together before we were married. Well, no, it's actually higher than 50% in those who cohabitated, who lived together prior to marriage. And part of the problem is that there has been this devaluation of marriage. Marriage is now considered a social construct. When we say social construct, we mean that our society, people as a group, have determined what truth is, what marriage is. It's a, we've constructed that idea of marriage, it's not derived from what the Bible says about marriage. And marriage has moved from a gift from God for his glory to demonstrate the great love that Christ has for his people, a covenant that shouldn't be broken, to, well, this is a relationship that I can engage in that will help me to self-actualize and be better fulfilled and be happier and to achieve my goals. The problem with that is, is if you find out this relationship doesn't help you to, to self-actualize and be fulfilled and meet your goals, then guess what? The, the marriage becomes dispensable. It's like, uh, it's, this is not working for me. Tim Keller says this in his excellent book, The Meaning of Marriage. The meaning of life during the 60s came to be seen as the fruit of the freedom of the individual to choose the life that most fulfills him or her personally. Instead of finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedoms and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage was redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. Newhauser in the book Marriage, Divorce, or Remarriage says this: because marriage is perceived as nothing more than a societal invention, people are free to redefine the marriage contract to meet their own evolving needs. Example with the availability of birth control, the ability of women to provide for themselves, and societal acceptance of homosexuality. Right? Because because of uh, the waves of feminism and the industrial revolution and the prosperity that people have. Um, women aren't as dependent on men, right? So I don't need you so I can live on my own. So this marriage really isn't necessary. That's how it's viewed. Reasons given for divorce. Some of these you might uh, be familiar with if you've been through some kind of counseling. Lack of commitment, right? That kind of is the essence of divorce, right? Infidelity, financial problems, substance abuse, domestic abuse, too much arguing, an interesting statistic when you look at um, divorce as related to people of faith, right? people who claim to be Christians, and especially conservative Christians, uh, this statistic comes to bear. And this is from Forbes, uh, Forbes magazine, their legal writer. There's a huge article. If you just Google divorce, Forbes, legal, you'll get a, three or four huge articles. Active conservative Protestants who regularly attend church are... 35% less likely to, to divorce, right? So the variables there are uh, you're an active attender, an active participant. Like being a part of the body of Christ matters, and you want to know the word and live out the word. Nominally attending conservative Protestants, so nominally would be, you kind of come here there when it's convenient for you, it's really not that important for you to be connected, but you need the warm fuzzies from coming and hearing the word, and and you, know, you like to sing that kind of stuff, you kind of pop in and out. Nominally attending, conservative Protestants are 20% more likely to divorce compared to secular Americans. It's an eye-opening statistic, right? And the importance of close connection to the body of Christ with respect to your marriage. Well, as we look at the text, before we look at the text, let's pray. Let's see what Jesus has to say about divorce and remarriage. And before I do that, right, so I'm going to say at the end that you know, um, some of you have experienced divorce, and it's been very traumatic and very difficult. Um, the church doesn't always respond well to that. Divorce does not mean you are broken and a second-rate Christian. Divorce isn't the unpardonable sin. Okay, And so um, the hope that we're given through the new birth and a new heart and the power of God is... Is a marriage that lasts. And any of us who have been married for, for quite a while understand that it's it's only the grace of God that sustains a marriage. It's the grace of God and His mercy that sustains a marriage. So let's pray and let's see what God has to say. Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for the beauty of marriage. Uh, thank you for uh, all that marriage does for us as your children, all that marriage accomplishes for your glory. In the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Lord, help us to understand how sacred marriage is to you and appreciate that. And uh, Lord, I pray that as, as followers of Christ, that our commitment to you would, demonstra- would be demonstrated by our commitment to marriage. So please help us to understand this text now. Uh, please uh, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, last time we were together, we looked at the issue of, of lust. And you can see how Jesus goes from saying, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. okay. And we talked about the issue of, of adultery and having lust in your heart. And so now we just kind of move on to this issue of adultery as related to divorce in the teachings of Jesus it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, so Jesus is speaking into a context uh, of two different schools of teaching uh, among the rabbis. Right? So just like us, we have you know, different schools of thought with respect to theology and what the word of God says. At that time, there were two different schools of thought, uh, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And one was conservative and one was more liberal. So I have this quotation. This is taken from the Mishnah, one of the chapters in the Mishnah that addresses uh, divorce. The school of Shammai say a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. Unchastity would mean unfaithfulness, uh, immorality for it is written because he has found in her indecency in anything. And we'll look at Deuteronomy 24 in a little bit. And the school of Hillel says he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, for it is written because he has found in her indecency in anything, right? So you have the conservative school of Shammai, which says, you know, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 24, this indecent thing, what it is, and we'll look at that in a minute. And Halal, Hillel, Hillel, <laughs> Hillel. <laughs> Conflation there. Hillel says, hey, you know, it's just indecent, you know, whatever indecent means. It's kind of the way the, the liberals look at the, 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 um, the Constitution and promote general welfare. That can mean anything. Right. And so they have this very broad spectrum of understanding of, of what indecency is. And so um, in Matthew chapter 19, we're going to get Matthew chapter 19 as well, because it works together with this passage. Jesus is addressing some people who are trying to trap him. Well, whose side are you on with respect to divorce and remarriage? Are you on the side of Shammai, or are you on the side of Hillel? Where do you stand on this topic? So we looked at Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Now I'm going to go to Matthew 19, where Jesus addresses the issue of divorce and remarriage again. So Pharisees came to test Jesus. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, Right? School of Hillel, any and every reason, whatever reason you come up with. You burnt my toast this morning. Jesus replied, Having you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. So we're going to have to look at what Moses says in a minute. So we're going to skip to Deuteronomy 24, and that's one spot where Moses addresses this issue uh, in the law. So why is it that Moses says, give the wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, Commits adultery. So there we have Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, two places in Matthew where Jesus addresses this issue. So when I get to Matthew 19 in a couple of years, whenever I get there, then we're going to just skip past this passage because you have it right here. I'll say refer to that message, okay? So what I want to do today is look at seven principles from God's word con- concerning divorce and remarriage. We're going to have seven principles from God's word concerning divorce and remarriage. So We'll get principles from Matthew 5, we'll get principles from Deuteronomy 24, and we'll get principles from Matthew chapter 19 as we look at this. Principle number one, as we go through this rather quickly marriage equals one man plus one woman for life. Who would have ever thought that this would be under assault? It is now, and you guys are fully aware of that for life. So the definition of marriage, right? And Jesus takes them back to the beginning, right? He takes them back to Genesis chapter 2 as God gives Eve to Adam and he unites them as a couple. Jesus says, look, haven't you remember at the beginning that the, the creator made them male and female. So one man, one man, one woman, male and female are, are very easy to understand biologically unless somehow you're culturally drunk a male XY, female XX. Biologically, it's clear. Male and female. It's not what a person thinks they are. It's what God has determined they are. God made them male and female. For this reason, the, male shall, the man shall leave his father and mother, leave and cleave, be united to his wife. That word cleave always really messes me up. Leave and cleave, right? Because there is a device called a cleaver. What does a cleaver do? It chops things in half, right? (laughs) But we leave and we cleave. I'm like, I remember reading that. I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. Why choose a better word than cleave, please? For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So the two are no longer one, but no longer, they're no longer two, but one flesh. And then this is for life. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So we see God's intention for marriage has always been one man, one woman, forever, for life. And I would refer you back to Sam's excellent message from Malachi concerning divorce to understand how devastating divorce really is, the picture that's in view there. I want to remind you, though, also of our definition of marriage that I gave you the last time I was with you. I think it's important to have a good understanding of marriage. Marriage is a covenantal union. It's a covenant that God has established between one man and one woman. Genesis chapter 2. And he does this, all right? Again, I said this before. It's not that, that, that God has this issue of, has this beautiful uh, relationship between Christ and the church, he creates marriage, and after looking at marriage, he goes, hey, Christ and the church are like marriage. No, it's God created the relationship between Christ and the church. He says, let me create this relationship that will show you the intimate love that Jesus has for his people, that I have for my people. And that intimacy that a man has for a woman is the closest thing that you will ever see for the intimate, intimate love that, that God, Christ, has for the church. Right, so he does this to, to illustrate the intimate, sacrificial love Christ has for his people, Ephesians chapter 5. And it is the only relationship, that was stress, the stressor from the last time we were together, It is the only relationship blessed by God for the enjoyment of one flesh intimacy. It is the only relationship wherein a person can enjoy that intimacy. Which serves as a seal of the covenant, right? And that's important. That union between a man and a woman, that one flesh relationship, is not just, okay, now they can have kids. No, it's like, this seals the union. This seals the covenant. Think how important that seal is. What's the seal of the new covenant? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what seals a covenant is important. And so we'll see later that when somebody unites themselves with somebody else in intimacy, you're in a sense, you're breaking that covenant. And Malachi is very graphic about that. Furthermore, this relationship is meant to be broken only by death, right? Jesus says that what God has joined together, let nobody separate. And then in Romans chapter 7, Paul illustrates you know, how we died to sin through this death of a one, one spouse in the, in the husband-wife relationship and dying to the law. Okay? And, and he uses marriage as an illustration. So we see this definition of marriage, right? That, that one man, one woman for life. That is how we look at marriage. The second principle is this, though not his intention for marriage, because of sin... God allows for, listen, God allows for and regulates divorce. As we look at the text of Matthew chapter 5, again, remember, um, he's doing this, it has been said, but I say. And that it has been said, has been drawn from the oral tradition that the rabbis, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, this oral tradition that's going back and forth, right? And, And so there's this oral tradition and they've broken away from what was written in the law. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, we're going to see in Deuteronomy 24 that that's there, but they've taken it and twisted it and expanded it and got all kinds of things with it. So there's this confusion about divorce. Again, in Matthew 19, Sister Passage this. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a wife give a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. So what is this certificate of divorce? What did Moses say? Why is Jesus going back to what Moses said? We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So what does Moses say about divorce and remarriage? Well, the first thing he says is though not his intention for marriage, God allows for divorce in cases of unfaithfulness. Let's look at the text. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, Now that's the key phrase there: something indecent about her. Erwat debar is the, the Hebrew expression. And, and really, literally, it means uh, nakedness of a thing. It means to uncover uh, the private area, okay? That's what Erwat Debar means. And so really, I'm not sure why there's confusion about it. Jesus really clarifies the confusion here about something indecent in Matthew chapter 19, except for the case of immorality. But here we see that though not his intention, God does allow for divorce in cases of unfaithfulness. Something indecent. Sexual immorality. And so we see there that this man, he's supposed to write a certificate of divorce, give it to her and send her away. So again, I've already explained this, this concept of something indecent. Um, I wasn't able to find like why there's so much discussion among different schools of thought because Jesus really clarifies it for us. right? So as a Christian, we can say, well, Jesus clarifies this in Matthew 19. He says what something indecent is. But if you're not looking at Jesus' words as being true and authoritative, like if you're still... A Jew and you're in these different schools and you can go back and forth about what something indecent actually is but it's very clear here and Jesus clarifies that for us the second thing we see here really is that God allows for remarriage after divorce after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man God doesn't condemn remarriage as he gives his word to Moses and then to his people It's assumed that a woman, if she is divorced, is going to get married again because she's absolutely destitute. The norm was that apart from being supported by a man, a woman would would be destitute and at times even have to turn to to uh, prostitution because they're so destitute. And so the understanding is that they're going to remarry. So after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man. God allows for this. Well, the text continues. And her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives uh, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, okay. and then we'll see more of this in a second, but the idea is that her first husband finds something indecent, he goes to the elders, he gets a certificate of divorce, he sends her out of the house, she goes and she remar- remarries because she's allowed to, because she has the certificate of divorce. Okay? And, and then the second husband basically gives her another one, dislikes her. He finds something out, something indecent in her, and sends her away. But the other thing we see in this text is that God is protecting the innocent by allowing and regulating divorce. Okay? Then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again. So you could look at this text, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, through 4, and say all God is saying is if you get divorced and you go get married again, you can't remarry the first person you were married to. You can leave it as something that simple. And quite frankly, most scholars do. That's, that's what God is saying. But what I think is going on here is that God is protecting the woman here because, you know, first of all, he says, "Give a certificate of divorce to the woman," so a man can't hastily divorce a woman. He finds out he finds something indecent, supposedly right. That has to be validated by the elders. Okay, there's other passages I could go to and talk about this, but he can't just willy nilly. I'm upset with you. I'm not happy with you anymore. You don't look the same. You put on weight. Yada yada yada. So I'm divorcing you. No, he has to go to the elders and actually get a certificate. So protection for the woman there. And this certificate is evidence given by God through Moses that the woman is free. She can now remarry. Though she was married, she now has the opportunity to remarry because she has this certificate of divorce. I think this law also protects the woman by 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 you know making it so that she doesn't make a bad choice, right? So let's say if she gets the the way the situation is, she gets divorced by her first husband, second husband divorces her, the first husband starts to look appealing again, right, because sec- you were bad, but the second guy was really bad, and my chances of making it alone out in the world aren't very good, so I'll take my chances back with the first husband. And God's saying, no, you, <laughs> we're not going to do that. And there are issues of inheritance rights that come into play as far as land that are concerned, Okay. We're not going to go there. What we're looking at, though, is, is that God allows for divorce. Okay. He's protecting the innocent. He has them do that by this certificate of divorce. He's allowing remarriage. We see this in Moses. And Jesus is telling those, saying, you know, we, you know, it's been said, right? This is the oral tradition. The oral tradition's kind of gotten out of whack. I want to recenter you. And Jesus is actually taking the school of Shammai here and making a more restrictive, conservative view of what's allowed for divorce. So, I have a question, though. You may have the same question. If marriage is meant to be a permanent union, what God has joined together, let no man separate, then why does God make this allowance for divorce? Why? Why does he do that? Well, we see that in Matthew 19... Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. See, marriage isn't the issue. It's the fact that when people get married, you're uniting two sinners. If you've been through premarital counseling, you understand this. When two sinners say, I do, right? There's all kinds of issues that can arise after marriage. And people's hearts can be hardened in the midst of the marriage. And so Jesus says, Moses permitted that because your hearts were hard. Because of the devastating effects of sin in the world in general, but also in marriage. That is why God permits divorce. That's why God allows divorce. John Frame, a great theologian, says this. He says, God determined that a prohibition of all divorce would be for fallen people unbearable. Right? Most of us know somebody who's trapped in a marriage that seems hopeless. They would consider themselves trapped, okay? There's no way out, it seems. The spouse can be abusive in different ways. It's unbearable for the person. And we'll talk about that at the end. God has determined that a prohibition of all divorce would be for fallen people unbearable and therefore counterproductive for good social order. Sin would certainly lead to divorce the law could not be expected to prevent that. The best thing that the law could accomplish would be to regulate divorce, to mitigate its oppressiveness, and maintain the rights of those cast aside. So the issue of divorce, it mitigates oppressiveness. It protects the innocent in the marriage. So God allows for it because of sin. So principle number two all right, We've got seven. We're going to move forward more quickly now. Though not his intention for marriage, because of sin, God allows for and regulates divorce. But Jesus, teaching in Matthew, allows for divorce if immorality has taken place. He has it very narrow here. And I don't need to spend a lot of time here, right? because he says it clearly. He says it explicitly. But I tell you that if anyone divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, he makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Then in Matthew 19, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery, right? So we have what's called in Matthew the exception clause, the exception clause. And and there's a lot of discussion about why Matthew has this and why Mark and Luke don't. So the exception clause is that Jesus allows for divorce in the case of immorality. It's clear as can be. He didn't have to say those words. But he did. He said it twice. So Jesus allows for divorce if immorality has taken place. But again, God's desire is loyal commitment to the marriage covenant even in cases of immorality. You may know of people who are in a marriage right now where one of this one of the partners was was unfaithful. They cheated. They committed adultery. But the marriage is still intact. In fact, the marriage could be stronger than ever. Immorality doesn't mean that the marriage has to end. It's a a big bump. Okay, there's going to be a lot to to overcome there. But marriages can and do survive that, and that's God's desire. What God has joined together, let nobody separate. That is God's desire, one man, one woman for life, no matter what happens in the marriage. That is God's desire. But Jesus recognizes the fact that when immorality has occurred, that it, in a sense, severs the covenant and it causes a breach that sometimes can be impossible to overcome. So in Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 6, Jesus doesn't give us the exception clause. So in Mark chapter 10, this is the way it's written. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Right. So there the woman's added into it that she can divorce her husband. But Mark doesn't give the exception clause. And many people will look at this and say that divorce shouldn't happen. And if divorce does happen, nobody should ever remarry. They take this stance, John Piper being one of them. Luke chapter 6, we see the same thing. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, right? There's no exception clause there. So why do Mark and Luke leave that out? Well, there's a lot of discussion about this, and it's, it's really hard to get a, a solid answer. One answer, I think, is helpful is, the, is, is from silence, right? Mark and Luke are writing with an understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 24. They understand that exception is there. It's, it's there. It exists. They don't need to say anything about it. Mark's focus is the commitment, the call to discipleship demands that you are committed to the marriage relationship. Right? Mark's all about discipleship and following Christ. And if you're going to follow Christ, but you're not committed to your relationship, you're, you're full of baloney. So there's this assumption of Deuteronomy 24. Matthew's cognizant of his Jewish audience. And what he's trying to accomplish there in the Sermon on the Mount. So, divorce is allowable in the case of immorality, according to Jesus. But God's standard is still one man, one woman for life, no matter what. But we also see in the Bible that God allows for divorce in cases of desertion. So Paul adds to this. I think this is very important. And I think this is very helpful. If, if the flavor or the tenor of Deuteronomy 24 is protecting the innocent party, protecting the woman in this case, then I think Paul really does a service for us through, through the Holy Spirit in protecting women in the case of desertion. It, it could be for a man as well, okay? So the passage in view here would be 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So to understand the context of this passage is important. So in Corinth... They had this really weird understanding that was going on that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good, so anything you do with your body it, it can be bad, but you'll never do something bad with your spirit, and they really viewed intimacy between a man and a woman as something that could defile the spirit. It's this is Platonic dualism thing going on, and so some of the Corinthians were saying, "Hey, you know what?" I'm not going to have relations with my wife. And if I don't have relations with my wife, that means I'm more spiritual. Hey, even better, let's just separate from one another. Because if we separate, then we really won't be tempted, right? So we're even more spiritual. Paul's saying, no. The station that you, like, where you were when you were married, married, <laughs> unmarried, slave, free, you know, that's, that's the position you need to embrace as a believer in Christ. So, He says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. So we would look at separating divorces kind of being synonymous there. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Now, some people get caught up in this. They say, oh, well, Paul says this, not the Lord. So somehow this is like. You know, the red word, the Jesus words are in red, okay? Well, this needs to be in yellow because Paul's saying, I, not the Lord. No, all scripture is God-breathed, okay? It's all useful. Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So don't let this, that statement throw you off. He's just saying, I didn't get this as direct revelation from Jesus, okay? as inspired by the Spirit. He writes, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Alright, So you have a, a husband and a wife. They're married. One of them comes to faith in Christ. The other one doesn't. And what do you do? Does that mean I need to divorce this person because they're not a believer? Verse 13. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So no, stay together. Stay together, right? We have people in our group. They're married to an unbeliever. And they're with them they're not leaving them because they're an unbeliever for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband meaning the common grace of being married to a believer it's it's a blessing from god otherwise your children would be unclean but as it is they are holy so the children now he's not saying that the children of a woman who's come to faith they're all of a sudden christians no it's because the mom is a believer They're going to be under the influence of the gospel and the word of God. They're set apart in that way. Now, here's the important part. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. All right. So you have two people, unbelievers. They get married. Okay. let's say it's the woman. The woman comes to faith in Christ. The husband does not. Paul says, continue in that marriage. 1 Peter 3 says, woman, live out a godly life. and your example, who knows by your example, God may bring your husband to Christ, okay? But in the midst of that relationship, if the husband says, I don't want any part of you, I don't want to be a part of your religion, I'm not having it, he doesn't commit adultery, he just says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. Then what Paul is saying here is you're not bound anymore. That word not bound is the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 7, When he's talking about not being bound to the law and he uses marriage as illustration, he says you're not bound to the marriage after death. So here is what we call the desertion clause. The unbelieving spouse deserts, therefore the divorce is okay. Don't try to hang on to that person, Paul says. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, right? doesn't matter What you do, you don't know. There's no guarantee that your husband's going to come to faith in Christ. Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul allows for this desertion. So what does desertion mean? Does it mean, just means the unbelieving husband just walks out and that's it? It's over with? I think when you deal with the issue of divorce, it can become very complex and complicated. There is physical geographical desertion where the spouse leaves, they're gone. You know, they've moved across the country. You don't see them anymore. But there are relationships, marital relationships, where two people are living in the same house, and for all practical purposes, one spouse has deserted. They're gone. They've abandoned the relationship. And they show this by the way they treat their spouse, right? So I would put under desertion. And again, this takes wisdom, a lot of prayer, a lot of understanding. I would put spousal abuse under the heading of desertion or abandonment. We'll call it abandonment, okay? There is abandonment with no plan to return. That would be kind of Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 7. And then there's abandonment of have just mentioned, living with the spouse but completely neglecting responsibilities to the relationship. Like we're in the same house you know what? I'm paying the bills. We're, we're going to sleep in separate beds. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I'm going to go out and do my thing when I want to do my thing. And so I would broaden desertion to that. Spousal abuse is, is horrific. And it can. it's not just physical abuse. It can be verbal, emotional. It can be physical. Psychological abuse. And so... Just for your sake, I've put a domestic violence hotline up there, okay? And if you know somebody who needs help, get them help. So I would broaden desertion a little bit more. So, the two allowable circumstances for divorce given by Scripture, and this is what our church teaches, immorality, that's any kind of intimate relationships outside the marriage, any kind, and some people would throw in looking at pornography all the time, Okay, and the other one is desertion, and I've broadened that out for you. What are some wrong reasons for divorce? Well, my spouse isn't a Christian, right? We covered that. We weren't married in a church. That's, that's when somebody's really reaching for straws. Well, it doesn't really count, right? It was just at the justice of the peace, right? So it wasn't really the church, so it wasn't really in the eyes of God, so... Uh, no, that doesn't count. Everybody gets married in a church has to have what, a license from the, the government. Well, my kids need this marriage to end. My spouse is a huge disappointment. We're no longer in love. We fell in love. We fell out of love. Whatever that means. You got to watch Hallmark Station to figure that one out. I married the wrong person. So many people go through this, right? Years down in the marriage. I, I, I wouldn't have married that person. If I'd have known what I know now, I just don't think I would have married them. Ergo, we shouldn't be together. I always tell people when I'm marrying them, the fact that you're standing here right before me and you're making your vows, it means that it's God's will for you to be together now and in the future until you die. Okay. I married the wrong person. I owe it to myself to be happy, right? That is that I read that quote from Tim Keller. I just don't feel like I'm meeting my personal goals. This person isn't good for me. We're going in two different directions. I'm just not happy anymore. And the most important thing is my happiness. So, and then God will forgive me, right? I know this is wrong. God will forgive me. And God does forgive you, okay? He does. Without limits, okay? So those are wrong reasons for divorce, but Paul tells us that divorce is allowable in the case of desertion. So principle number six, God allows for remarriage in cases where divorce related to immorality or desertion are in play, right? So we've talked about divorce. When is divorce allowable? Some people would say, okay, those are exceptions that are okay for divorce, but you should never remarry." I don't find that to be scriptural, and I'd give you reasons why. But God does allow for remarriage. In the cases of divorce. We see that in the case of Moses, right? Remarriage is kind of assumed here. That she's marrying somebody else after the divorce. Jesus allows for remarriage after divorce in the case of immorality. It's assumed they're going to remarry. Paul allows for remarriage after divorce. They're not bound under such circumstances. But I think it's important here to understand you get down to verse 39. I believe it's verse 39 in chapter 7. You remarry what? In the Lord. You remarry a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, the last principle is this, is that God's grace is sufficient for every single marriage. Um, There's a a book written by a a last name, Gary Thompson. No, Watson Thompson. I'm going to get it wrong. Gary Thompson. It's called what's it? Gary Thomas, Gary, thank you. Uh, we've read it multiple times. Gary Thomas, uh, Sacred Marriage. And um, it's a beautiful book. And, and the thesis of the book is, is that the purpose of your marriage is not your happiness, but it's your holiness. And whatever circumstance God brings into your life, His grace is sufficient so that you can glorify God through every difficult circumstance that you may face in your marriage, including immorality. Okay? But God's grace is sufficient for every single marriage, right? Again, 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them. Right? I quoted Augustine earlier when I was at the Lord's Supper. God, command what you will, but will what you command. God, if it's your command that I stay married, then please provide the grace I need in this marriage, I truly believe that if, if you're in a difficult marriage, a that God's grace is sufficient. B that God is working for your glory, for His glory, and your holiness in that marriage, and that is that is the priority. Okay, and that no matter how difficult the circumstances are, that God will give you joy if you walk in obedience, in spite of how you feel about the marriage. God's grace is sufficient for every marriage. Again, I emphasize this. At the beginning, divorce is not the unpardonable sin, okay? People who are divorced, they're not broken, damaged goods that can't be used for the glory of God. That is not the case. Divorce doesn't make you a second tier Christian. Divorce is like any other sin if it's divorce that's done the wrong way, okay? By God's grace, through the blood of Jesus, He uses us in spite of our sinfulness. Now, you can make the case that in certain ways of serving in the church, if you have experienced a divorce, then one of the qualifications is to not have been divorced. You can make that case. It doesn't make you a second-tier Christian. So as we move to the end here, I want you to be what you are, right? How are we salt and light in reference to what we've learned today about divorce and remarriage? One, as salt and light, we must honor marriage through purity, this is so important, right? This goes back to the previous passage where Jesus says if you look at another person with lust in your heart, then you've already committed adultery. If you want to protect your marriage and honor the sacredness of marriage, then you have to protect what your eyes see. This, this is essential. You have to give action to our words when it comes to purity. Purity. As salt and light, we must defend God's design for marriage through our lives and through our words. Marriage, as given by God, it's under attack. Essentially, it's been blown up. Marriage, as designed by God, has been destroyed by our culture. Right, and really the beginning of the end was in June of 2015 the Oberkfell and Hodges ruling, the Supreme Court. The 14th Amendment requires the state to license a marriage between two people of the same sex to recognize a marriage between two people of the same sex when their marriage was lawfully licensed and performed out state. Friends, I'm not a prophet, but the next thing that's going to happen is... You've heard of polyamory, polygamy. Okay. It will be next. But we have to defend God's intention for marriage... Through our lives, through how we live out our marriage, and through our words. It's okay to speak out about what God's word says concerning marriage. You're not a judgmental bigot if you just speak truth about the word of God. As Saul and light, we demonstrate our commitment to Christ through our commitment to marriage. And I can't emphasize this enough. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, you say, I will follow Christ no matter what. I'm denying myself, taking up my cross and following Jesus, friends, that begins in your marriage. That's where that begins. One commentator says this, with regard to marriage, Jesus' followers must not abandon difficult marriage relationships simply because they are not meeting their personal needs. I add, being salt and light is not about self-gratification, but about giving oneself for the kingdom of God. The powerful message of reconciliation between God and human beings is exemplified in believers through their commitment to the marriage relationship. If you believe in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that entails, the best place to see that demonstrated is in your marriage. Which leads me to the next point. As salt and light, the gospel of Jesus is the foundation for a countercultural marriage of joy and Fulfillment. Let me read that again because I left the word out. As Salt and Light, the gospel of Jesus, is the foundation for a countercultural marriage of joy and fulfillment. Remember, I began the Sermon of the Mount saying the whole you could look at the Sermon of the Mount and say this is about being a non conformist. The Sermon of the Mount is about being countercultural. Friends, if you espouse marriage is being between one man and one woman for life, you are now countercultural. Another commentator says this, nothing is more natural in our fallen world today than to build a marriage on a foundation of God avoidance. That's the way the world works, but it cannot work. Without peace with God, we inevitably shatter the peace we desire with one another. Only the gospel of Jesus can free us from this endless power struggle and restore the romance, the beauty, the joy, and the harmony that God intended. So as Christians, right, we don't hold out marriages that are like a a fragile facade. Oh, look at us, how we love each other. It's just this this, uh, facade. No, what do we hold out to the world? Not the perfect marriage. No, we hold out to the world a marriage empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to take two sinners and unite them in a common purpose. That's the power of the gospel in marriage. The gospel has the power to uniquely transform each individual in the marriage relationship into the image of Christ, an image of sacrificial love and service to the other. That is countercultural. Marriage is not about me, self-fulfillment, Self-happiness, no. It's about sacrificial service, and the gospel gives you the power to do that. The gospel gives us the power to forgive and heal the deepest and most painful wounds, even the case of immorality. The gospel has the power to persevere husband and wife through a life of uncertainty, disappointment, heartache, until God separates them by death. And we, as Christians, it's not, oh, Christians, they have the perfect marriage. No. We have a marriage founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that talks about reconciliation. A gospel that talks about forgiveness. A gospel that talks about sacrificial service to the point of death for the other person. As those united by Christ and in Christ, our marriages represent the gospel of love made possible through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the dead. So Jesus' teachings protect the sacredness of marriage and us from destructive choices. Right, Marriage is a beautiful gift from God. And Jesus wants to protect it. He wants to protect that intimacy that's only meant to be in the marriage so that we can fully enjoy all that God has for us. And weathering the storms of life, persevering through the difficulties, even immorality will wind up in joy for the glory of God through the power of the gospel. Amen? All right, so we're going to sing a song uh, in a second. Uh, What is it? I have decided to follow Jesus. What is it?